Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. And the first scripture reading is from Luke 15. It is part of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, A severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we're going to do the second half of this story. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has gotten him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. 
So we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. We are in the fourth and final part of our sermon series where we are talking about individual Christians who have made a significant contribution to the Christian faith. These people are better known as church fathers and mothers. And these are people who transform the Christian faith from a fledgling religion into the official religion of the Roman Empire. The way these sermons work is that I'm going to tell you about this person, whoever it is we're talking about, I'll tell you a story, who they are, where they came from, how they became a Christian. Next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what it is that they did that made them so important. Why are we remembering them here today? The final thing that we're going to do is that we're going to talk about how what they did impacts us here in the 21st century. Work for you? Good. Works for me too. Okay. So, last week we talked about the church mother a woman named Perpetua and her example of Christian equality. This week we are talking about the church father, a man by the name of Origen. So, before I jump into Origen's actual story, I want to tell you just very, very briefly that this man had a huge, huge, enormous impact on the Christian faith. He is arguably one of the most prolific authors and defenders of the Christian faith that has ever existed. He wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible. Now that's the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, which technically didn't exist when he was alive. He also memorized the entire Old Testament, knew it all by heart. And he also knew many of the New Testament books by heart as well. So this guy is real, real important. He's done a lot for the faith, and I'm going to get into exactly what he did. So, Origen was born into a Christian household in 185 A.D. in Alexandria, Egypt. His father was a professor of literature at the Catechal School in Alexandria. He was very, very respected, this man, and he ended up teaching Origen about philosophy, literature, about the Christian faith and the Bible. There was a myth that circulated about Origen, and this myth said that When he was a young boy, he knew the Bible so well that his father, who was an extraordinarily learned man, couldn't even answer all of his questions about it at that point in time. But then in 202 AD, when Origen was 17 years old, his father was rounded up, arrested, and executed for his affiliation with the Christian faith. Now, rumor had it that Origen wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, but his mom hid all his clothes so that he couldn't go outside and he was too embarrassed to go out naked. So he decided he'd stay home. I don't know if that's a true story, but I just thought it was kind of funny. That's that's the way he survived. Now, what we do know for sure is that after his father was executed, the state comes in and appropriates all of the family's property, takes it all away. So Origen, his mother, and his ten brothers and sisters are now homeless. Now, thankfully, the Catechal School of Alexandria, they really liked Origen's father, and at the age of 18, they give Origen a teaching post. Now, he didn't deserve a teaching post at the age of 18, but he needed to take care of his family, so they were willing to give it to him. But at this time, what you have to realize is that he adopts what's called an ascetic lifestyle, meaning it's a life devoid of all worldly pleasures. And he did this because he wanted to connect and be closer to God. So he was a teetotaler, meaning he didn't drink any alcohol. And he was also a vegetarian in accordance with Genesis chapter 1. You all know this, right? 
God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for your food. You all didn't realize you're supposed to be vegetarians, did you? <laughs> First commandment in the Bible right there. Technically, that does go away when you get to the Noah story, but that's where, that's where it starts, right there. He also would fast for long periods of time because he wanted to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the desert again as a way to get closer to God. Now, it's during his time at the Catechal School of Alexandria that Origen develops his very unique approach to the Christian faith. He combines, for the first time, Christianity and philosophy into a single field. So he's literally the first Christian philosopher. And he was very, very well known for his speaking skills. He was very good at arguing and trying to get people to convert over. And very famously, he once converted this very wealthy man named Ambrose. And Ambrose was so taken with Origen that he gave Origen a house, a secretary, seven stenographers, and a stenographer is a person who sits there and writes down, today it's the person in court, right? But like back then, it was somebody who had to sit there and listen to everything you said and write it down in shorthand and then draw it out. And he was given a crew of copyists and calligraphers, and this guy Ambrose paid for all of his works to be published. So that's why he is one of the most prolific writers of the Christian faith ever, is because he had all these resources at his disposal. Now, it's during this time that he writes books, commentaries, and speeches on Christianity. And he was well-loved. People loved his writings in Egypt. He was just so well-known, and he was a very popular figure. But whenever somebody gets popular, what happens? Do you all know what happens when people get popular? They got a lot of haters, right? That's true. That's the way it goes. So, one of his biggest haters happened to be the Bishop of Alexandria, a man by the name of Demetrius. Remember, this story happened 1,800 years ago, but the human ego today, no different than it was back then, that's for sure. So the Bishop of Alexandria, he really didn't like Origen, and he was a man who really believed that because he was the bishop, his words and his opinions should matter the most to the Christians in Egypt. And it really rubbed him the wrong way that Origen, a guy who wasn't even ordained as a priest, was more respected and sought after than he was. But the straw that really broke the camel's back for Demetrius was when Origen published his groundbreaking book on the first principles. Now this book was a landmark. It was amazing because what it did, it was the first time that any Christian had ever written down in a book all the theology and all the foundations of the Christian faith in one place. He was the first person to really develop all the thinking out systematically for the first time. And in fact, most of what we believe today started in that book right there. Now, this book was super popular. It's like the Harry Potter of its time, okay? Like, it was all over the world, all over the ancient world. People were reading this. And he was receiving invitations from all these leaders to go and talk about the theology in this book. Now these invitations are interesting for a number of different reasons. First reason why it's interesting is that what you have to realize is that at this point in time, Christianity is technically illegal. If you're a Roman citizen, you're actually not allowed to be a Christian. And that's why his father was executed, is because he was a Roman citizen and he was very open about his faith. 
Now, if you were a Roman citizen and you didn't tell anybody you were a Christian, you'd be fine. But his father was very outspoken. That's why he was ultimately killed. But Origen, he was not a Roman citizen. Because you inherit your citizenship through your mother. And his mother was not a Roman citizen. So he's in this gray zone. He can go all over the ancient world. He can talk about the Christian faith and not have to worry about being killed. So that's kind of point number one with Origen. Point number two. He's this highly respected intellectual. And I know intellectualism today is something that kind of is on the, on the downside. It's kind of going away a bit. But back then, if you were a highly respected philosopher, you had access to the greatest leaders of the day. And more importantly, they cared a lot about what you had to say. So all of a sudden, thanks to Origen and his book, On the First Principles, Christianity has this platform and this voice that it's never had before. For the first 200 years of the Christian faith, what we've been talking about through this whole series, Christianity was the religion of the common folk. It was the religion of the peasants. Yes, every so often you would have somebody who was wealthy who would convert in, like Perpetua, who we talked about last week. But these people didn't have the clout to get Christianity onto the national stage and into the national conversation. Like, that's literally what happened with this. All of a sudden, Christianity goes from this thing that's kind of underground all the way up to where everybody is talking about it. And so thanks to Origen, you have people who for the first time are really taking Christianity seriously. They see it as something that's worth their time to talk about. I really believe that if it wasn't for Origen, Christianity probably would not have made it out of the Roman Empire. It would have stayed among the lower classes and then it would have maybe died out a little bit later. But because of him, it went into the upper classes and all of a sudden they took it seriously and it lays the foundation so that 150 years later, the Christian faith becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. He literally takes Christianity from the minor leagues to the big leagues. Now can you guess how the Bishop of Alexandria felt about this? He was mad. He was upset. He was incensed with all the recognition that Origen was receiving. So he did what any good bishop would do in this situation. He reads the book and he cherry picks passages that he thinks are offensive and then he declares Origen a heretic. Because that's what he can do. That's his one point of power as a bishop. You can sit there and you can say, hey, you're a heretic. And by declaring him a heretic, what does that do to everything he's ever written? X's it out. Now, one of the things that he chose to focus on about Origen is he said something in On the First Principles that nobody had ever said up until that point in time. Origen made the claim that ultimately every soul would be with God. In other words, he believed that every human being at some point or another will eventually be with God in heaven. Now remember, this guy knows the Bible's backwards and forwards. He's memorized the entire thing. How does he come to this conclusion? Well, he focuses on a lot of different places in the Bible. But the one thing that he focuses on the most is the parable of the prodigal son. Now we read the parable of the prodigal son this morning in its entirety. But do you mind if I go through it again real quick and just point out a few things to you that are going on that you may have missed in the middle of it? Okay. This parable, by the way, it illustrates Origen's point in one of the most beautiful ways. So, this story revolves around a father and two sons, right? 
Younger son comes to the dad and says, what? I would like my inheritance now, please. Of course, this is a horribly insulting request because essentially what the younger son is saying is, I only care about your money and I wish you were dead. Now, practically, for the father to actually fulfill this request would be rather complicated. It's a tough thing to do because he's got to liquidate land and assets. And for a family of means, as we are assuming that these people are in this story, this would be a really tough thing for him to do. Now, for the hearers of this story in Jesus' day, they would immediately recognize that this request would irreparably damage the relationship between father and son. Essentially, by making this request, the younger son is literally cutting himself off from the family. But the father gets all the money together, he gives it to him, and the younger son, what does he do? He goes off to a foreign land where he indulges his every desire. Today we'd say he was living the party lifestyle, right? He went out and he ate tons of food, he drank tons of alcohol, he slept with prostitutes, and he gambled. Eventually, though, he wakes up one day and he's penniless. He doesn't have any money. And so facing starvation, he seeks out employment at a pig farm. And he realizes that the pigs are actually eating better than he does. Now, you have to realize that for Jesus' audience, who are Jews, by the way, and who wouldn't get anywhere near a pig because of the Old Testament kosher laws, they would have felt that this guy really got his just desserts now that he's working on a pig farm. So, the guy's on the farm, he's working, and he thinks back to when he lived at home with his father. And he thinks about how his slaves, the slaves of his dad, lived better lives than he did. And so he makes a resolution. This is what he decides to do. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back home, I'm going to beg my father's forgiveness, and I'll become one of his slaves. So he starts making his way back home. And he's anticipating what it's going to be like to see his father again. He's expecting an icy cold reception because what? He did. He cut himself off from the family. But when he's a little ways out, the father sees him off in the distance. And rather than get angry or mad, the father runs out to the son and embraces him. And the son, he starts making his case immediately for why his father should forgive him and allow him back in. But it doesn't really seem like the father is listening. And he calls to one of the slaves and he says, bring my best robe and kill the fatted calf for we are going to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and has been found. Now the older son, he's out in the fields and he's working. And he sees the commotion back at the house. And he calls out to one of the slaves and says, hey, What's going on? And the slave says, Well, hey, your, uh, your younger brother, he came back. And your father, he's throwing a celebration in his honor. And that older son, he's so upset. He's so angry by this that he refuses to even go inside. And when the father catches wind, he comes back out and he's trying to plead with him, Come in. Come in. You know, come, come to the celebration. And the older son, he won't hear it. And he starts getting really angry, and he says to him, Look, unlike your younger son, I've been obedient. I've been working for you all this time, and you couldn't even bother to throw a party for me and my friends, and yet your younger son, he comes back after having spent his entire inheritance on partying and prostitutes, and you throw a celebration in his honor. And at that point, the father stands there and looks around and says, 
hey, everything that you see around me, it's yours. And you can do with it what you please. But the Father is insistent. We had to celebrate. For this brother of yours was lost, and now he has been found. Okay, that's the story in summation one more time, with a little bit of added detail. Okay, so what's going on in this story? What's happening? Who are the characters? Who do they represent? So I think we can all agree on one thing. The Father represents God, right? I think we can get on that one, right? That's universal, universal interpretation. The brothers are a little more complicated, though. Not everybody agrees on them. I think if we're doing it based on the story, let's start with the younger brother. Based on the story, I think the younger brother represents someone who has turned their back on God, somebody who rejects God. Would you agree with that? If the father represents God, that's what he's done. And he's gone out to live a life of selfishness because isn't that what he does? He leaves and he goes and he lives the way he wants to live. True? I mean, it's true to the story, isn't it? All right. And then we have the older brother. And the older brother... He's somebody who clearly embraces God, right? I would say that probably based on the audience and the story, the older brother represents a Jew who is very observant of the 613 commandments. I think that would make sense in the context, right? So really, these two brothers, they represent two very common types of people in those days. You have the religious who embraces God, and you have the non-religious who reject God. Yeah? We good with that? We okay with that? That feels okay? All right. I think the point of the story is to see the two sons at their extremes and then talk about how God reacts to them. So with the younger son, how does God react to the younger son? Well, with the religious person or the, or the non-religious person, he turns his back on God and walks away. And what does God do? God is sitting there waiting to welcome him back with open arms. That's what we see in the parable, right? Now, the real kicker in this story, the hard thing about this story, the thing that, frankly, many of us in here don't like, is the fact that he's willing to welcome him back no matter what he has done. In fact, it doesn't even seem that much like God requires an explanation just overjoyed to have this person back. But when you get to the other person, to the religious person, this is tough. Because the reality that God is willing to allow them back, it makes the religious person furious. As is indicated by the older brother. This unconditional acceptance is hard for the religious person to stomach because the religious person has been obedient to a fault. The religious person has been focused so much on following the rules to a T, that they have trouble forgiving anyone who doesn't take the rules as seriously as they do. Indeed, I think an implication within the text may be that the older brother or the religious person tends to think that they are the only ones who are really deserving of a reward because they're the only ones who have lived the way God wanted them to live. Now, when God comes to the religious person and says, hey, we need to celebrate that this person came back, the religious person is indignant, saying, how can you let them back? How can you welcome them back in? Don't you care about everything that he did? Don't you care about how he hurt you, me, and everybody else? And I think the answer is quite clear. Yes, I do care about how he hurt you, me, and everybody else. And those relationships will need to be repaired. 
but that's not going to stop me from rejoicing. At the core of this parable is something very, very important, which is that Jesus is telling us that central to God's being is unconditional love. No matter what your actions may be, no matter how vile or sinister they may be, nothing will stop God from loving us. From God's perspective, the door is always open. You simply have to be willing to walk through it. This is better known as universal salvation. In origin believed that even when you die, even when you die, God will keep coming after you until you are back in God's arms. Now, Demetrius, he might have thought that that was heretical, but I actually think it's quite beautiful. And Origen, he believed that the true fulfillment of God's kingdom, and I think this is amazing. I talk about God's kingdom all the time in here. This was his opinion. The true fulfillment of God's kingdom is when every single creature in the universe has made their way back to God. That's what he believed. Now, he was also very clear. It's our choice. We can choose to turn our backs on God for as long as we want. But he also believed that God's love was strong enough to melt even the most hardened of hearts. And I agree with him. I think that the most powerful force in the universe, by far, is God's love. And I believe that there is nothing that we can do to stop God from loving us. And I think that that needs to be the core message of our church. We need to be a reflection of that radical acceptance. Because if the doors of heaven, the gates of heaven, if they are literally never closed... If the gates of heaven are literally never closed and God is always on the lookout waiting for you to return, then that's how we need to be. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, God will always take you back and celebrate and rejoice that you are there. And that's what we need to do as well. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you might be willing to shout it from the rooftops, that you might go to the people who you know who are not here, the people who you don't see in this place, the people who have no relationship with God, and that you might tell them that the doors of this church are open to everyone, and that if you walk through those doors, you will be welcomed with open arms. All you have to do is come as you are, and you will find acceptance. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.